Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're thankful that you're with us. I wanted to share with you some uh, family news so you can be aware and be praying for uh, uh, fellow Crosspointers. Uh, Cindy Reed's father passed away this last Thursday. Uh, the visitation is Monday evening from 5 to 8 here in Eureka uh, tomorrow night, and then the uh, funeral service is 11 a.m. on Tuesday morning with the hour visitation beforehand. So be praying for uh, Dave and Cindy and uh, their family on the loss of Cindy's father and be encouraging them as you have opportunity as a church family. I also wanted to share with you uh, that uh, Bo Reuter is set to have another surgery this coming Tuesday. I'll read what Logan put on Facebook yesterday because he says it much more succinctly than I would. Uh, but he writes this, We also found out that his heart was getting tired, which is obviously concerning. Uh, they think the reason is because at least one of the arteries going to his lungs is narrowed. This causes higher blood pressures in them, which makes his heart work harder. Up to this point, it was tolerating the increased pressures, but now it's starting to tire out. The procedure to fix this problem is relatively straightforward. They will insert a tube with a balloon on the end in a vein in his leg and run it through his heart and into the, into the pulmonary arteries where they will inflate the balloon and stretch open the arteries. Then the pressure will be relieved and his heart could relax and remodel. Uh, this pr uh, procedure is nothing like open heart surgery, which he had um, uh, back in December, but it does involve some risks, which uh, with him going under anesthesia, getting intubated. However, they expect him to do well and benefit significantly. And then he says, we definitely covet your prayers uh, through this. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to pray for them and pray for Reeds, and then we'll get into the message. Uh, Father God, I pray for uh, a little Bo Reuter. I pray that uh, this surgery would would be uh, nothing more than a next step. It wouldn't uh, prove to be any sort of uh, major obstacle. I pray for health and healing in him. And God, that you would continue to show yourself faithful like you have over uh, several months now of, uh, of, of Bo's life, of Brooklyn's life, and in the Reuter family. And I pray where there's anxiety and worry, I pray that you would bring peace and strength and, uh, and, they would, and we would trust in you and your goodness and your grace. Uh, I, I pray that uh, we would mourn with uh, the Reed family on the loss of Cindy's father and that we would come alongside and give us opportunities, Lord, to uh, pray with them, to encourage them, and to uh, lift them up to you, uh, knowing you are good, you are gracious, and that you are uh, near to the brokenhearted. And I thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, go to uh, chapter 4 of First Peter. Uh, we'll wrap up this series, this book, uh, next week, and then it'll be Easter on April 5th. We're going to tackle all of chapter 4 today. And so because of that, we hit a lot of different topics. We're going to lump these into three different sections and look at the following three words, sin, uh, serving, and suffering. Uh, one thread through all of Peter's letter is that he's reminding and challenging us as Christians on what it uh, particularly looks like to follow Jesus in the daily life. As Christians, we have a new identity that's anchored in Christ. So knowing that, how does that new identity flesh itself out in our lives? In our culture, many would simply define a Christian as someone who attends a church where they uh, read the Bible and they sing and they have a steeple somewhere, they have a cross somewhere, or that they, th these are the people who attend church on Christmas or Easter, or these are the ones who try to do more good than bad, or they try to avoid all those social taboos, or they're the ones who grew up in church, so they're automatically a Christian as a result. And maybe you think some of those things. Maybe you think that, become, that you simply become a Christian by attending a church that has some of those elements. Uh, the reality is, is the Bible gives us a much clearer, much uh, more extensive picture on what it truly means to be a person who follows Christ. 
Because to be a person of Jesus who follows Christ means you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus. You're spending the rest of your life seeking to walk as Jesus walked and to, uh, and to love as Jesus loved, to live as Jesus lived. To be a Christian means that your way of life will look different than it did before you knew Jesus. And that may, might seem obvious, but we kind of gloss over that sometimes. And that you're, it will mean that your heart will grow more and more devoted to Him as the years go on. That your love for Him will increase. That you're making progress in your faith. And in chapter 4, we'll see God's Word giving us some practical thoughts about, again, about what it looks like to follow Jesus. As we approach these verses, I, I think for many of us, we're asking uh, these three questions as, the, as they relate to sin, serving, and suffering. The questions are, can't I hold on to sin? Can't I live for myself? Can't I avoid suffering? Can't I hold on to sin? Can't I live for myself? And then can't I avoid suffering? These are the three questions that we're asking oftentimes. We may not be verbalizing it, but we're thinking about it. And as we read through chapter 4, we'll see God's responses to those three questions. His responses will be, be done with sin, love and serve others, and, and don't be surprised at suffering, but rejoice. So we say, can't I hold on to sin and can't I still follow Jesus and still hold on to that? And God says, be done with sin. We say, can't I live for myself? I mean, can't I make this life about me or this relationship about me? And God would tell us, no, love and serve others. And we say, can't I avoid suffering? And God would tell us, don't be surprised at suffering, but rejoice. The first one we'll tackle here is, can't I hold on to sin? And Instead, he'll say, be done with sin. Verses 1 and 2 in 1 Peter 4 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In light of a suffering Savior, in light of the pain that Jesus went through for our sin, in light of the brutal death that he died for us that we'll, uh, that we'll remember on Good Friday... We better understand, in light of that, we better understand how do we put off or put to death our old ways of living. He was put to death in his body, and so we arm ourselves with with that same attitude, that same attitude that understands sin is not to be taken lightly. There are consequences for our sin. When we look at the cross, we see that there are consequences for sin, that that's not a pleasant picture, but that's a brutal picture. And we see the love and the holiness of, of God collide on the cross. We see that our God is a holy God. The idea of arming ourselves is this military term that we, uh, you see elsewhere in the New Testament, such as Ephesians 6, about putting on the full armor of God. Peter tells us to arm ourselves also with the same attitude, that same attitude of Jesus towards sin. And Jesus was sinless. When tempted by the enemy, he resisted and avoided falling, tempt- falling to temptation. And so we too we take on that same attitude that says, no, I'm a Christ follower now. I'm not going to go down that path of sin. I'm, I'm turning from that. We've seen that elsewhere in First Peter already. Uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Or chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So when our hearts or the devil wants to whisper to us, thinking that 
you can, you can still hold on to that. Peter says, no, no, be done with sin. That doesn't mean we no longer sin, but it does mean that when we do sin, there's this, this we're not going to stay there. There's this growing disdain, this growing dislike for our sin. We don't live the rest of our earthly lives for earthly human desires, but instead we live for the will of God and what He wants. And this is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day choice, right? It is for me. This choice, this moment-by-moment choice that we make is, and that's fueled by our new identity in Christ, that we've been set apart, that our lives have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We now live for him. It's Christ who lives in us. This is the attitude that we arm ourselves with. So when our flesh says, that, no, we can hold on to that, our new identity in Christ says, no, be done with sin. Romans 6, 7 says, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Through the cross, the power of sin has been broken. And so when we're tempted to think that it hasn't been, we need to remember that reality, that the power of sin has been broken. Verses 3 through 4, Peter goes on. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Peter's writing to people like you and me, who have a past. Debauchery means this lack of restraint or actions that are uncontrolled. You'll notice that the culture of Peter's day is not that much different than our own culture today. Or the things that were in the past that uh, the, the people that Peter's writing to here, the things that were in their past, pretty similar to what's often in our past. I'll be the first to admit, I've got a past. I've got things in my life that I'm not proud of at all. And here's what I know about most of us in this room is that you've got a past as well. Some of us have been protected by the grace of God from destructive sin. Others of us have a lot of stains on our heart when it, when it comes to uh, destructive sin. And we can relate to what Peter lists off here. And our temptation when we think about our past is to feel this abundant amount of shame or this condemnation, if you will, to be willing to uh, believe that God's grace is enough to forgive those people, but when it comes to you, somehow God's grace is not enough to forgive you. And when we do that, we are elevating ourselves over the authority of Scripture. We're saying our hearts, our feeling, my experience is greater than what God's Word says. No, it's God's word applies to them, but not to my own heart because, you know, I did mm-hmm. And so it trumps that. We somehow believe that lie. The beautiful thing about the cross is that you can't outrun it. You can't sin so great that the Father doesn't welcome you home and throw a party for you when you repent and agree with God about how he calls you to believe and live. All through the New Testament, we are given this picture that we've all got a past. And, but God has the power to save us and not only save us, but then transform us, give us a new identity, a new spirit, a new heart within us, give us a new purpose in life. Listen to just a couple of these sections. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Your past is not who you are anymore. Your past is not who you are anymore. And some of you still don't believe that. And you still live in this reality that your past is somehow still your identity instead of who you are in Christ. You look at this verse and you say it applies to them, but not to your own heart. Your past is not who you are anymore. Live in that reality. God has rescued you and transformed you. And so now live for the will of God, not for earthly desires, but for the will of God. Or listen to Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, is what he writes. These are beautiful and powerful words of God reminding us that no one is beyond God's reach and that our past sin, we've all got it, that our past sin, it doesn't have to be this black cloud like the cartoons over us for the rest of our lives. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and the cross and the resurrection say otherwise that this cloud doesn't belong there anymore. Instead, you've been covered in His righteousness and this great exchange has happened where he has taken on your unrighteousness and you've been covered and, and, and been given his righteousness. We are saved by the grace of God, not by our works. So there's no shame in our past. But rather for those who are in Christ, when we look at our past, it causes us to worship, doesn't it? It should. It, cause, it should cause us to be grateful to the God who has loved and forgiven us and who has broken the power of sin in our lives. And so Peter's writing to people like you and me who have a past past. And in a sense, he's saying, he's talking about this tension that they're feeling. You're saved now. You're a new person in Christ. And yet you're a light to those yet to know Jesus. And you're living in the world, but you're not supposed to be of the world. And you're a new person in Christ and a new creation. You're, you're a witness to the world around you. And yet your way of life should be different. And so when you live in that tension, it will lead you to avoid hanging out with certain groups or friends or going to this event or this location because you know it won't go well for you. You know that it's like playing with lions in a lion den, lion's den, and so you avoid going to that place of great temptation or going to that, that place, whether it's geographic or just in your own mind or in a relationship. And yet, you're a witness and a testimony to those around you. And what Peter is telling us here is that for those of us who are not, for those people who are not following Jesus yet as Lord and Savior, they will be surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. And some of you understand this reality. You've gotten saved, and now the people in your life, your, uh, at your house, the friends at school, your coworkers, your family members, your friends are taking these shots at your new way of life, and they are heaping abuse upon you. Oh, you're too good for us now, huh? Oh, you think you're perfect? And they're taking these cheap shots and they're gossiping and they're mocking you for your new faith in Christ. And Peter is saying that you will experience people slandering you because you're unwilling to follow them down a path of sin. 
And in those moments, especially being new to faith, you might be thinking, no, wait, can't I, can't I hold on to the sin and still be a light and still be a testimony? And God's Word here is saying, no, be done with sin. And when, you get, when you've been given an opportunity, when they heap abuse upon you, you tell about the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And no, it's not about you earning or attaining your salvation. It's about Him being so perfect that He still willingly took on our imperfection. Verses 5 and 6, But they will have to give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel uh, was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is a sobering reminder again that this life is not the end, that there is an eternity that awaits all of us, that, that God will judge us according to how we have responded to the good news of his son. God will judge the living and the dead because both the living and the dead have been given the gospel and given opportunity to respond to it in faith or reject it in disbelief. The gospel doesn't keep us from dying. dying. We will all die. The gospel does prepare us for what happens after death. And for some of you, whether you're a student or adult, you're in this place of continuing to reject or resist the good news of that Jesus has come to save you. Again, you believe it for other people, but not for yourself. My encouragement to you is to stop resisting and stop putting up arms to uh, reject that good news. He will continue to pursue you until you humble yourself and give your life to him. His love and grace is that powerful. It will overcome your pride. And so my encouragement is for you to just humble yourself and trust Him to be your Lord and Savior and to begin to follow Him. This is a safe place to figure out what that looks like and to ask questions about that. So when we're tempted to think we can hold on to sin, we remember that God calls us to be done with sin because His Son finished it on the cross through his suffering, and so that we might die to sin and live for God's purposes and glory. Now, Peter's going to move on to another subject, this attitude that we should have towards serving in community. The question we bring to the table on this one is, can't we just live for ourselves? I mean, come on, can't we make this life, this relationship, this organization, this whatever about me? To which God will say, no, we, we instead live to love and serve others. In this section, the Holy Spirit is going to paint us a picture of what biblical community looks like. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. We live in light of the second coming of Christ. That this world is not the end. That the biblical reality is, is that Jesus will one day return, not as a tender baby, but as a king and judge. We don't know the date, the time, the, the day of his return. The Bible says we won't know that, but we should be ready. And so therefore, um, and so whether it's the uh, second coming of Christ or, or, or our own death, we know that the end of all things is near. That our circumstances can change in a day and maybe our lives, maybe the circumstances around us can change. And as a result, our life will never be the same after that day. And so knowing that our lives are finite, that none of us will escape death, knowing that the Bible promises that Jesus will return, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. That when you're praying, you're expecting God to work and move. Sometimes we don't pray because we really don't expect God can do anything. And that reveals this lack of faith in us. 
And so we're remaining watchful to see how he will answer. The opposite of sober is, is drunk, right? And when you're drunk, you're disconnecting from reality. And for some of you, this is why you drink, because you want to escape reality. Instead of dealing with the reality head on, we try to escape it. Or instead of ultimately turning to God-glorifying ways to deal with that, that anxiety, that stress, that, that hurt, whatever it is, we turn to destructive ways of, for example, of drinking. And if that's you, I'll just say this. There's no shame in your sin. But you need to stop trying to white-knuckle this and figure this out on your own. You need to stop thinking it's not a problem or think you can just manage it or you need to ask for help. And this is, again, a safe place to ask for help because we've just read that our God can make all things new. We've read it twice in the New Testament. It's all over in the New Testament. It's all over this room, too, stories about how God is changing us. And so to say that we should be of sober mind means that we are fully aware of reality, that this life is not the end, that Jesus can return at any time, and so we pray in light of that reality, which means, practically speaking, that you and I are going to need to get alone with God sometimes. We're going to need to set aside the distractions that pull us away from reality and just hear from the Lord and be with the Lord in prayer and in His Word. And we need community around us to help us keep us uh, sober-minded, if you will, to keep us alert. This is not something we do only in isolation, but we do it alongside fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God. This is a bedrock of what uh, biblical community looks like. Verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. When Peter writes above all, in a sense he's saying of most importance, of supreme importance, love each other deeply. One person has said love is capable of being commanded because it's not primarily an emotion but a decision of the will leading to action. So it's not a command of be happy, right? Maybe try to do that as a child, try to fix up your kid before you walk into the Christmas gathering or something. Um, but instead, this is we can command to love one another because love is a decision of the will. It's action. Love is an action that must be expressed by followers of Christ. We are not to live for ourselves, but instead we live to love and serve others. This is a love that doesn't grow tired. We are told by Jesus to love our enemies, but we can't learn to love our enemies if we don't first learn to love and grow in our love for those closest to us. Love covers a multitude of sins. And if you're in Christ, and if you've experienced the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God, you know what it means to have love cover your sin. I hope you do. I pray you do. And I pray you don't lose your awe of that. But we are not simply loved for our benefit, but then we are loved by God in order that we might love others. God forgives the sinner who comes to him in repentance and faith, but then he demands that we turn around and forgive those horizontally, forgive those in the same kind of spirit with those around us, starting with those in the family of God. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. One who is aware that they have been forgiven of much will be quick to extend that kind of forgiveness to others. The one who falsely thinks that they have somehow earned or merited the love and forgiveness of God because they're that awesome will then expect people around them to be that awesome to, to earn their own forgiveness. You wronged me? Well, you know what? I earned it here vertically, so you better earn it from me horizontally. And that will destroy your marriage, by the way. 
If we've been saved by grace, we will then turn around and be dispensers of grace. God's people, God's people should be the most gracious people on the planet because we are the ones that are fully aware of just how much we've been forgiven of. Our love needs to be the kind of love that covers each other's sins, the love that enables fellowship, the love that removes hostility and the conflict that says, you know what, I've wronged you and you've wronged me, but may our relationship not be defined by the sin, but by the love of God, which covers a multitude of sins. I don't need to remind you of this, but I'm going to anyways, uh, that fellow Christians will sin against you. I have been sinned against by brothers and sisters in the family of God, people who I thought loved and cared for me and yet gossiped and slandered about me. And it's wounded. It's, uh, it'll leave a wound on your heart. I've also sinned against others in the family of God in various ways. Too many to list before your lunchtime, all right? And in those moments, in those relationships, we can either let the sin define us or we can let the gospel define us. The gospel which says that love covers a multitude of sins. If we are to love one another deeply, then we will not put, on, we will not put the focus on the hurt or how we have hurt others, but rather the focus will be on the love that covers the sin. This is one result of pursuing humility that, that we will recognize that we are not just the ones who have been wronged, but that we have wronged others. And so we will be quick to, quick to forgive, quick to show grace. We will not allow that sin, that hurt, to lead us to murmuring, lead us to gossip, but we will cover it, and we will cover it with love, which, again, is a good word not only for our relationships, but your family relationships, our marriage relationships, parent-child relationships that love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. If we love one another deeply, hospitality will be one result of that love. We will be generous to guests in our home. We will open up our homes. We will use our kitchen tables, our living rooms for God's purposes and not just for our own. And we will do this without grumbling because, again, the temptation is to say, can't I live for myself? I mean, do I really have to make this about me instead? God's Word says, no, we live in order to love and serve others. Grumbling means murmuring or secret displeasure. If you're a parent, you know what that means and what that looks like, right? This is under your breath, the kind of stuff that never leaves your mind. It shows up non-verbally, but it doesn't show up maybe verbally. It's possible to be, to be generous on the outside, but grumbling on the inside. Maybe we grumble because we have to fix the meal. We might have to pick up the house uh, because we have to make time for it. Or maybe if we're honest, sometimes we grumble because of the people that are coming, because, oh, they're coming, huh, okay. And we kind of grumble and mumble about that. In this letter, Peter refers to us as aliens or strangers in this world, but in the family of God, there are to be, there are to be no strangers. So in a world that is sometimes hostile toward our faith or in a world where we experience trouble, we need each other. We need to gather in homes. We need, need to gather in community groups and in restaurants and over meals and together in homes. Crosspoint, I pray in the coming year we would take significant steps forward in showing hospitality to one another in the family of God. We live, to love, or we live to serve and love others. That's what Peter continues to reinforce in verses 10 and 11. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards 
of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We serve others with the spiritual gifts that he has given to us. We are managers of the gifts that God has given to us. And we're called to be good stewards of those not for our glory, but for God's, not to make a name for ourselves, but to make much of the name of Jesus. A common misconception in the church, not just this church, but any church, is that the pastor is the only one who does the ministry. Those on staff are the only ones who do the ministry. But we see over and over in the New Testament, this verse being an example of that, that the body of Christ is called to minister. The church is most effective. It's most God-glorifying when the body is ministering to the body. I love to see how that's happening around here. I get to see so many behind-the-scenes things. I saw it this last week. I saw it the week before. I saw it this morning. People serving behind the scenes, using their gifts, their abilities, their experiences for God's purposes to serve other people. That's how the church is most effective. So can't we hold on to sin? No, God says be done with sin. Can't we live for ourselves? No, we, lo- we live to love and serve others. And then finally, we might say to ourselves, can't we avoid suffering? We would say this, especially in the midst of suffering. Can't, can't we avoid this? And to that question, Peter writes, verses 12 through 19, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. He begins with, dear friends. Your translation may say beloved. This is the tone of the section that he's writing here when it comes to suffering. That In the midst of suffering, don't forget that you were dearly, dearly loved. Not only by God, but by others. Sometimes as parents, Heather and I are, uh, maybe you can relate, but Heather and I are card-carrying members of the uh, suck it up club or the uh, rub some dirt on it club. Maybe we're the only ones. That's fine. You can judge us. Um, there's a time and place for such a response. It's not always our response, but our kids will tell you that sometimes that is our response. All right. And I won't be relinquishing that card anytime soon. I like that card, but that's not the tone that Peter's writing with here. He's writing with great affection and love for those who are reading and listening to this letter. He's writing to bring earthly comfort and an eternal perspective. And the first thing Peter tells us is don't be surprised when you hit suffering. If you're new to following Jesus, you might think, no, wait, I thought this was going to go better. I thought this was going to go better, and it is, and it has. But it doesn't mean that you're just going to be shot up to heaven and and be removed from this broken, fallen world, or that your life will be free now of suffering, loss, or hardship. Problems and trials are a part of life. I'm not telling you anything, again, that you don't already know. But sometimes we can think, no, wait, hey, I was, I'm obeying Jesus. I mean, shouldn't this like reciprocate and shouldn't this go really well for me now? And, and Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. The idea of fiery ordeal means this refining of metals in a fire, and its purpose is to test you, to refine out of, the, out of you the impurities, things like pride, our self-reliance, our willingness to trust in ourselves rather than in God Almighty. 
See, the suffering is not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's not random. There's a purpose behind it. God is using it in our lives. We may not know why the side of heaven, but we do know who our God is, the side of heaven. And so we trust. Recently, a uh, eight-year-old boy with tears in his eyes asked me, why did my grandma die? And all I could tell him was, I don't know. I've had friends, and we continued on this conversation, and uh, I've had friends pass away before I thought they should have, before I ever would have um, had them pass away. So I don't know. But here's what I do know, is that God is still God. He's still good. His nature and character is still sure. He's still faithful. He's still gracious. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of questioning, we trust. We walk by faith and not by sight. And God is still God, and that's why we worship Him. That's why we trust Him. Even when we don't know those questions, we know that God does. And so that's why we don't trust in ourselves, but we trust in Him. And in the midst of suffering, we rejoice because we know that His glory is is revealed in His second coming. We know that on that day, all that suffering will be turned to joy. John Wesley said this, For the measure of glory answers the measure of suffering, and much more abundantly. In the next few verses, Peter will give us reasons why we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering and why the measure of glory is far more abundant than the measure of suffering. Verse 14, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We will face persecution for our faith, whether on the job, school, family. We will encounter those who ridicule or exclude or mock. And when we are insulted, we are blessed. The Spirit of God is resting on you. This is a great consolation for us. John Piper said this, In great suffering on earth, there is great support from heaven. What you're going through, it may be beyond you, but it's not beyond the grace of God. It's not beyond His ability to rest His Spirit upon you. Verse 15, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So Peter's quick to clarify that our suffering should not be a result of our sin. So this is not bringing it upon ourselves through our own sinful choices and say, man, I'm really suffering. No, you just shot yourself in the foot with that sinful choice, okay? But notice how, how here he says, murderer, uh, murderer, murderer, whatever, uh, murderer, thief, it, or meddler. That's what I wanted to get to, that word. Um, your translation may say busybody. And we all know it's wrong to murder and steal, but... But Peter reveals that it's evil when we pry into other people's uh, private business. We're prone to gossip. We're, try, we're prone to spend all our time talking about other people's problems and how they need, need to do this or that. And that's a good word for small town USA. Murder, mm, thief, mm, did you hear about? And, and we justify that one. Or we type that one. Verse 16, however, if you... That was for free. That was just... That was just uh, verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The word Christians only used three times in the New Testament. And the idea behind it meant little Christ. It was a term used by those who rejected Jesus, and it was not a term of endearment. It was meant to mock, oh, you little Christ. Oh, little Christ. There's tr- it's truth behind it, though. 
As Christians, we are to be little Christs, mini-me's, if you will, people who will seek to live and walk as Jesus lived and walked in regards to suffering, to suffer in ways that he did for his glory and for his purposes. When we share in his suffering, it gives evidence that we have this relationship with Christ. Romans 8, 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So when we suffer as a Christian, one reason we can rejoice or praise God is that in that moment, we are identifying with our Savior, a Savior that promises that he has overcome the world and eternal life awaits those who rest in him. Verses 17 and 18 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When Peter says it's hard for the righteous to be saved, he's saying that on our own, apart from the saving work of the cross, the resurrection, apart from a rescuer, a hero, a Messiah, we would still be lost. We cannot save ourselves, and if we were to be judged by our own merits alone, none of us would be saved. The only thing that saves us is the righteousness of Christ given to us for those of us who trust in Him for our salvation. And finally, verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. When we suffer for being a Christ follower, it is a means by which we can bring God glory that through our words, our attitudes, our way of life, we can still proclaim that He is good, that He has not forsaken us, and that we have not forsaken Him, that He's still precious to us, and we still trust in Him. The NLT says verse 19 this way, and I love it. So if you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what is right, and trust yourself to the God who made you, for He will never fail you. If the band could come back up now. Um, Peter reminds us at the end of the section that the God we serve is faithful that he is trustworthy, that he is creator, that nothing is beyond his power or his ability. So as a result, when we commit our lives to him and trust in him, we can continue to do good because our God that we serve is forever good and faithful. The truth that God is faithful is a great close to this chapter. So when we say, can't I hold on to the sin and still follow Jesus? And can't I have it both ways? And God will tell us to be done with sin. And when we're tempted to pursue it, we are reminded that God is faithful. He was faithful in breaking the power of sin on the cross and the resurrection. And, that the, and he's faithful to fulfill the promise of Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we say, can't I live for myself? God will tell us no. Love and serve others. And when we grow weary of that, when we grow tired of that, God is faithful to give us the power and the grace and the strength to do that in a way that glorifies God. And when we say, can't I avoid suffering? God will tell us, don't be surprised at suffering, but rejoice. Because our God is faithful to his people, both in this life and in the life to come. Crosspoint, may we be a people who commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do do good for his glory, for his purposes, and for his kingdom. Let's stand up and sing.
Father God, we thank you that you are our firm foundation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the grace, the strength, and the power to be a people who are done with sin and turn from sin, to be, to be a people who live to love and serve others and not for ourselves. And may we be a people that if we're in the midst of suffering, that if suffering is around the corner, may we not be surprised at that. 
but may we rejoice in it and may it lead us to only increase our faith and trust in you. I thank you that you are faithful through generation after generation after generation. I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We worship you because you're that great. You're that good. You're that gracious to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a good week. Meet somebody new. We finish up 1 Peter chapter 5 next week. God bless.